listening to the Retro Sermons podcast. Find out more at northcolumbuschristians.com slash retro sermons. From service to service, not missing, you have gone a long way toward making the meeting what it's been. Preaching without an audience just doesn't seem to get much done, and we appreciate the effort you've made in that regard. Uh, we have two more nights of the meeting, and I especially want to appeal to the members of this congregation to set aside those two nights for this gospel effort. We've been having a number of visitors, and if all of you are back tomorrow night and Friday night, visitors that will be coming, we'll have an encouraging attendance, encouraging audience. And I just trust that you will cooperate in that as well as bringing others to be with you. It's been a delight to be with the congregation again for a number of years. I've appreciated all that's been done to make my stay here pleasant, And I just trust that God is blessing the efforts that are being made to your edification. I want to begin tonight by reading a short portion of scripture from the book of 2 Samuel, the 13th chapter. Beginning with verse 1, we're reading about a son of David. In that period of time when David was king in the city of Jerusalem. Beginning with verse 1 of the 13th chapter of 2 Samuel, we read that after this it was so that Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, that would be a half-brother, loved her. Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, I suppose lovesick, for she was a virgin. And it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. And that's almost an understatement. It most certainly was improper for him to do anything to her. In the first place, he was not married to her. He had no right to her. Individuals who are not married have no right to the body of one another. But in addition to that fact, she had shown no evidence of any love for him. And for that reason also, he would have been improper for her to him to use her. But in the third place, she was his half-sister. And even if they had been in love with one another and desired to marry, it would have been unlawful for them to marry according to the law of God. And so it was simply a hopeless proposition as far as he was concerned that he would have the right to her. But in the third verse, it is said, but Amnon had a friend. And I'm going to stop reading right there. Some of you know the rest of the story, but many of you perhaps don't know the rest of the story. We'll suffice it for now to say that the rest of the story, both this episode and the entire life of Amnon, depended upon the kind of friend that Amnon had. You know, there are two different kinds of friends. There are good friends who will encourage us always to do what is right. I think of a number of instances in the scripture. For instance, back in the book of 1 Samuel, the 25th chapter, we find David at a period of time long before he was king, when he was running from Saul, and his men had protected a fellow by the name of Nabal. Well, at the harvest time, David sent some of his men over to receive some gift from Nabal. 
And instead of giving them a gift in repayment for the protection David's men had given, he insulted them. Well, David was extremely angry. And so he gathered up 400 men to go over there and kill off the whole of Nabal's servants, male servants, as well as Nabal himself and every male in Nabal's house. But David had a friend. He didn't know her at the time, but it was Nabal's wife. And she came out with some gifts for, for David and pled with him to be rational, to be reasonable. And David was employed by her and did not do the thing he had intended to do. And in verse 32, David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to me. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hastened and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. Now, that was a good friend. She stopped him from doing something that he later most certainly would have regretted. David had another good friend. You remember the 11th chapter of the book of, of 2 Samuel? David was guilty of the terrible sin of adultery with the wife of Uriah. And then when it be, appeared that it might be discovered, he killed Uriah, had him killed in battle. A terrible thing for a person like David to do. And it appeared for a little while that David might get by with it. That this itself had hardened David. David was not the man he had been before because he was covering sin. But David had a friend, and that man's name was Nathan. And Nathan came to David and told him a story which caused David to see himself as he really was, so that David repented of his sin and sought forgiveness from the Lord. That's a true friend. In the fifth chapter of the book of Second Kings, we have the story of a man by the name of Naaman, a captain of the host of the Syrians. And he had leprosy. You recall that he came to Elisha the prophet to be healed of his leprosy. He thought Elisha would come out to a man as important as he was, wave his hand over the leprosy and pray to God, and he'd be healed that way. But Elisha chose not to even come out to see him. This made him angry. And Elisha sent a message and said, go wash seven times in the river Jordan, and that made him even angrier. After all, that river Jordan was nothing in his view to compare to the rivers of Syria, which he had in run flowing through Damascus. And so he went off in a huff. He wasn't going to do it. But he had a friend. And that friend came to him and said, if the prophet had asked you to do some great thing, you would have done it. How much now, rather, do this very simple thing and be healed of your leprosy? In the New Testament, we read about a preacher who knew only the baptism of John. He was de dedicated to preaching about Jesus, but he didn't know the full story, and he was not leading people all the way to Jesus Christ. But Apollos, the man, had a friend. In fact, he had two friends, a husband and wife. And this husband and wife, Priscilla and Aquila, took him to themselves and taught him the way of the Lord more perfectly. And any friends who will teach you the way of the Lord more perfectly are friends indeed. There are wonderfully good friends that certainly help us to avoid evil and to do what's right and help us to get to heaven. That's one kind of friend Amnon could have had. But alas, there is another kind of friend. 
There's the friend that will tell you what you want to hear. There's the friend that will encourage you in doing whatever it is you want to do. There's a friend that will keep you some time from doing right and encourage you in doing wrong. Job had such a friend. It was his wife. Job, you remember, was terribly afflicted. He was, his patience was being tried to the very ultimate. And instead of encouraging him, his wife came and said to him, just curse God and die. Such a terrible suggestion. In the first, uh, in the first book of Samuel, the 22nd chapter, we have an interesting episode in the life of Saul. You remember King Saul had learned that David had been anointed to be king after him, and he hated David with a passion. He was determined to kill David. But instead of cooperating with his efforts to kill David, both his son and his daughter had actually assisted David. And Saul was feeling terribly put upon. In the eighth verse, he says to his courts, to his courtmen, court, courtiers, all of you have conspired against me, and there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. There is not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. But Saul had a friend. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. Now Ahimelech was the priest, and uh, David had, fl had fled to them, and they had assisted David. Well, immediately Saul sent for the priest, and not only the priest, but all of the priests from Nob, 85 of them. And when they got there, of course, he told them that they were going to die. And he called upon his guards to fall on the priests and kill them. And Saul's own guards refused to do what he said. Ah, but Saul had a friend, Doeg. Doeg was asked by Saul to do it, and he killed 85 of the Lord's priests. Yes, indeed, Saul had a friend. There are other examples. Ahab, the king, saw a vineyard that he wanted. He tried to get the, the, the vineyard sold from Naboth. Naboth refused to sell the vineyard to Ahab. He had every right to refuse to sell it. But Ahab went home and turned his head to the wall and as we say in modern language, he just pouted. He was angry. He was puffed up about this thing. But he had a friend. Again, his wife. His wife came in and said, Are you the king of Israel and you can't get what you want if you want a vineyard? She said, I'll take care of that. And so in Ahab's name, she made a feast and put Naboth in a position of great prominence and then hired two scoundrels to accuse him of having blasphemed the God and blasphemed the king and the people stoned Naboth. They killed him. And when he was dead, she went and told Ahab, now you can go take your vineyard because Naboth is dead. Ah, he had a friend so that he could get what it was that he wanted. In Proverbs, the first chapter, the wise man Solomon warns against that kind of a friend. The Proverbs contain much practical instruction from a father to his son, and none is more practical, perhaps, than this. Beginning with verse 10, he says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Come with us, let us lie and wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those who go down to the pit. 
We shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us all have one purse. You can almost imagine a young fella going off to the big city and these fellas gathering around to take advantage of him, to get him to join up with them for crime. But he said, My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. A bird's not going to fall into a net if he sees it set. And he says, You should not fall into such a net yourself, such a snare, as to follow the advice and the counsel of such so-called friends. There are good friends then, there are bad friends. And which kind of friend did Amnon have? Well, let's go back and read. Back again to the book of First Samuel, Second Samuel, the 13th chapter. Let's continue reading. Verse 3. But Amnon had a friend whose name, name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. They were cousins. Now, Jonadab was a very crafty man. And that's not used in a bad sense necessarily there. It just means he was shrewd. He knew how to get things done. And he said to him, Why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So that's what he did. He asked David to send Tamar into him. And when Tamar came to take care of him in his supposed sickness, he put all the men and all the servants out of the room and he took advantage of her. In modern language, he simply raped her. What a terrible, terrible thing for him to do. And it was because he had a, the kind of friend who would advise him to do what it was that he wanted to do. The consequences were terrible. In the first place, we're told that after he had taken advantage of her, then he hated her. And you know, that just proves that it was not real love sick. It was lust sick. And so much that passes for love in our time is nothing in the world but lust. It's amazing how many girls will fall for a boy's line that he just loves her so very much when all in the world he wants is the advantage he can get from living with her for a while without accepting the responsibilities of marriage at all. And so often, after such a period when a girl has given the very best of her life sometime to a boy like that, maybe even brought a child into the world, then he goes off and leaves her and hates her. And, of course, it works the other way sometime also as well. It's not love at all. It's just lust. But because he had taken advantage of Tamer, Tamer's full brother, Absalom, was determined to get vengeance on Amnon. And within two years, Absalom killed Amnon. And so he died. But that wasn't the end. Because Absalom had killed Amnon, he was sent away from David's presence. There was an alienation between them. And Absalom began to build up a following and actually led a coup d'etat against David, which forced David the king to leave Jerusalem. And there was a civil war in which not only Absalom, but many of his followers, and as well as the followers of David, were killed. All because Amnon had a friend. But was he really a friend? Honestly now, 
Was he really a friend? Oh, he claimed to be. If he hadn't appeared to be a friend, claimed to be a friend, then Amnon never would have shared this secret, this dark secret with him. And it's a fact that he acted as we commonly expect a friend to act. As I said a few moments ago, there are some people that think that anyone who is really my friend is going to tell me what I want to hear. Anyone who's really my friend is going to encourage me to do what I want to do. And then when I do it, he'll give me support in it. And if he won't support me in what it is I want to do, no matter whether he agrees with it or disagrees with it, he's not really my friend. But was Jonadab really his friend? He brought him to his own death. Besides the shame and reproach he brought upon Tamar and the sadness that he brought to the family of David and the terrible consequences in the land of Israel, was he really his friend? The fact is that Amnon would have been far better off without a friend than to have a friend like Jonadab. What's the rest of your life story? It's not yet finished. The Lord willing, all of us here have a little more time in this life. And I want to tell you that the rest of the story of your life may well depend on what kind of friend you have. You say, well, if it depends on my friend, then it's no responsibility of mine. Oh, yes, it is. Because you choose the kind of friend that you'll have. You make that choice. And if you choose the wrong kind of friend, it's most likely that wrong kind of friend is going to lead you down, down, down. If you choose the right kind of friend, that friend will help you. But you make the choice. These choices very often begin in elementary school. And I'd just like to say to the young people here in this assembly tonight, who are in elementary school, third, fourth, fifth grade, you make choices, even at that young age, that can have a tremendous effect upon your life. There are good boys and girls in your class. There are bad boys and girls. And the kind you choose to associate are going to affect your life. It becomes even more critical, of course, in middle school and in high school. I went to a huge high school. And uh, there were some people that warned me not to go there. I had a choice between a city school and a county school, a particular place where I lived. And they said, Oh, there are just a lot of bad young people in that big school. And that's true. There were. They were very bad. But I found there were also some very good ones. It was a choice to make. And I could choose either one in high school. And when you go to college, it makes a tremendous difference the kind of friends you choose. Uh, president of a school, a secular school, state university, once said to me, I don't think that it is the science classes or the philosophy classes that destroy the faith of young people who come to this college. He was a Christian himself. He said, rather, it's the friends they choose. He said, if they make their friends in the church and the church is the center of their social life, he says, they'll make it fine through any kind of a course they have to take. On the other hand, if they choose their friends among the people of the world, if they have social social ambitions and uh, are eager to get in the sororities and the fraternities and all of those things, he said there's almost nothing the church can do to hold them. And I've seen that demonstrated in Atlanta again and again. 
But I think also there are those who make the mistake of thinking that if they just go to a school that's operated by Christians, they won't have to worry about that. Well, I have no objection to that. I sent my children to a school that was operated by Christians, but I want to tell you, in every school I ever saw that was operated by Christians, there were some boys and girls there whose parents couldn't control them, whose parents couldn't keep them out of trouble, and they sent them to so-called Christian school in the hope that they could reform them. And the hope of reforming them is, is almost nil. And if you go to a school even operated by Christians, you still have to make a choice. There are good friends, there are bad friends. There are friends that will help you to be a stronger Christian, to love the Lord more, to develop in his service. But there are those who will tear you down and drag you down and bring you and your family to shame. And it's been repeated again and again and again. When you move away from home, whether it's to go to college or whatever the reason might be, you make friends. And again, it's the kind of friends you make that will determine to a great degree your spiritual life. We've observed it in Atlanta. Of course, there we have so many young people coming in from places all over the country. Small towns many times where they've been in the church, been very faithful to the Lord in the church where they were with their parents and with their brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts as the case might be. And very often when they first come to Atlanta, they'll be here Bible study on Sunday morning and morning worship and Sunday evening and Wednesday night and they're, they're very active. They've gotten jobs and, and they make it a point to be in services. But sometimes we begin to see them drifting off, maybe missing Wednesday night or missing the Sunday morning Bible classes. And then they're coming in Sunday night, having missed worship on Sunday morning. And then we're trying to call them, and we, we can't even get them on the phone. We get their answering machine, and they won't return the calls. And we know what's happened. We know exactly what's happened. They form friends in the world, and those worldly friends have other things to do Wednesday night. They have other things to do Sunday morning and over the weekends. And they put the pressure on these young people to go with them into the things of the world, and before long... They are just completely lost. And the saddest part of working in the with the church in Atlanta is to see fine young people come whom we just cannot hold. In spite of all the efforts we make, they drift back into or drift into the world. And it's because of the friends that they choose. When you get married, you're choosing a friend for life. Sometimes that doesn't seem to be exactly what we're thinking. I uh, remember Tommy Port. I think some of you know Tommy. I heard his name mentioned the other day. I heard Tommy preaching one time about his daughter, and he was trying to encourage her to date a certain boy, and she said, well, I don't want to date that boy. He's my friend. And Tommy said, well, what do you want to marry, an enemy? And that's a pretty good question, I think. The fact is that the happiest marriages are marriages where the husband and the wife are the very best of friends. But when you get married... You're choosing a friend for life, and that person you choose to marry is probably going to have more influence on your life than any other one human being. Now, if you marry the wrong kind, you can still be a Christian. There are numerous examples of it, but the struggle is going to be much greater. It's going to involve a constant fight to stand up and do what is right if you marry a friend whose desire is to tear you down spiritually to lead you into the world. But I want to suggest to you that you not only are going to affect your own life when you choose that marriage friend, 
but you're going to affect your children as well. In the 22nd chapter of the book of Second Chronicles, we read about a king by the name of Jehoram. His father was Jehoshaphat, one of the best kings in the history of Judah. But Jehoshaphat and Ahab, the king of Israel, who was a very wicked man, made a kind of an alliance, and first thing you knew, the son of Jehoshaphat had married the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. Her name was Athaliah. Well, we're told in verse 2 that their son Ahaziah was 42 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother counseled him to do wickedly. Therefore he did evil in the sight of the Lord like the house of Ahab, for they were his counselors after the death of his father to his destruction. When Jehoram chose a wife, he not only chose a friend who would affect his life, but one who would affect the life of his children. And that is something you're doing when you choose a marriage companion. It's mighty easy to think simply in terms of here and now. Is she beautiful? Is he handsome? Does he have money? Can she cook? These things that have to do simply with the next year and the pleasure and the joy of the honeymoon. But one who is wise will think far, far ahead to five years from now, ten years from now, when she's the mother of my children, he's the father of my children, and to when she's the grandmother of my grandchildren and the grandfather of my grandchildren. These are things that we need to remember because they become very, very important in our lives. Even after you're married, there are still friends to be chosen. And I'm increasingly concerned about the closeness that I see develop sometime between couples. One couple who are very spiritual-minded, perhaps, and another couple not so spiritual-minded. And when they began to take vacations together, when they began to take their, to go out to eat together, when they get together to play games in their home, or whatever they may do together, it's very evident sometimes that the worldly couple is influencing the Christian couple in the wrong direction, in the wrong way. Couples have friends who influence them. And there's one other category that I want to mention, and that is friends that we make that we never really meet. You may wonder how that can be, but I believe that television characters can become as real to us as the friend that lives next door or the friend with whom we're in school. And one of the things that disturbs me most as I go from place to place and visit in homes is to realize that many teenagers are taking as their closest companions characters that they see on television or in the movies or that they see on videos or in some other way contact. And many times those individuals whose pictures they have on their walls, whose tapes they they gather and videos they watch are some of the vilest, most wicked characters in our nation. Now, when those become the heroes of our young people, there is no way that they are going to escape the influence of those immoral people. It is going to have its effect. You can just absolutely rest assured. It's not only TV and radio and videos, but it's books that we read. We had one young man that came and made a confession in a church where I was preaching several years ago, and it's obviously several years ago, but he was an admirer of Joe Namath, and he had 
He had read a book of the biography of Joe Namath, and he had tried to tried to imitate the lifestyle of Joe Namath. And he said, I have sinned grievously, and I must be seek forgiveness. He had been influenced by someone he had never shaken hands with even. But it was a friend who came to be a friend in a book that he was reading. And the same is true of magazines and all, of, all other media. We are influenced by the people we associate with uh, even on the screen. It may be that some of us here tonight just need to change our friends. And I would surely like to urge you to take stock right now of the kind of friend that you are, 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 are associating with. And ask yourself, is this friend or are these friends helping me to go to heaven? Or are they influencing me to be lost? Are they making me more Christ-like, helping me to be more spiritually minded? Or are they turning my heart toward the world, toward immorality, or toward things that are purely secular? And you may say, well, I'd be willing to change friends, but, but I just don't know any of those good people that you're talking about. Maybe you're looking in the wrong places. It amazes me sometimes that people say they want good friends, but they don't go to the place where good people are to be found. There are, there are many opportunities, and particularly in this area, more so than in some others. I hear announcements of gospel meetings. I see announcements on the bulletin boards, vacation Bible schools. The very best of boys and girls, men and women, couples, will be attending those meetings. And if you don't know someone already within your present acquaintance, visit those meetings. Watch for the kind of persons there that you could be friend with. A friend who loves the Lord and is faithful and active in the work of the Lord. But if you can't find that kind of person, just as was true of Amnon, you'll be better off without a friend. To, to, to live your own life on your own than to have a friend that would tear you down and destroy your character. But you don't have to go without a friend. And I want to stress that fact. In Psalm 142, David found himself in a position of feeling that he had no friend at all. In verse 4 of Psalm 142, David said, Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. Nobody cares anything at all about me. I don't have a friend. You can almost hear him say. But then his, he says, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. When David did not have a human friend, he found a friend in God. Jesus offers to be our friend. Turn with me to the book of John, the 15th chapter. And here Jesus is in that conversation that took place the very night that he was betrayed. While Judas was out making the arrangements to arrest him, he was with the other apostles in the upper room. And beginning in verse 13 of the 15th chapter of John, Jesus says, No greater love has anyone than this, to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, 
For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. There, my dear friends, is a friend that you can depend on, a friend, a friend who will help you to bear fruit for the Lord. And if there is no human friend in whom you can trust, you can most certainly trust in Jesus. You say, oh, but he's not real. He is real, my friends. And he's more in position to help you than any friend you'd make on television or any friend you'd read about in a book. Jesus is capable of assisting and aiding you in a personal way when you truly depend upon him. I'd like for you to turn with me now to another passage. This time to the very last book and the very last chapter that the Apostle Paul ever wrote, the fourth chapter of the book of Second Timothy. It presents one of the most pathetic pictures, I think, in all literature. Paul, who had traveled across the world, preaching the gospel, saving the lost, serving the Lord, finds himself in the city of Rome. On a previous visit to the city of Rome, the brethren had come out to meet him, walking many miles, to meet him before he even arrived in the city. But now things are different. He had written a letter to them, naming various ones there who meant so very much to him, greeting them. But now the thing is different. In verse 16, he is on trial before Nero, and great multitudes doubtless filled the great basilica where these trials were conducted. But he states, at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. I can't help but contrast this with the view that has become so familiar to all the American public of O.J. Simpson. There he is on trial, but you never see him alone. There is that battery of lawyers that surround him. And when he leaves the courtroom, if you have opportunity to see, there are those hordes of fans with their signs and placards giving him support, letting him know of their friendship. But in this great basilica with thousands standing around, there's one lone figure, Paul the Apostle, no one standing with him. He says, may it not be charged against them. Where they were, I don't know. We know some had been sent away by Paul. Perhaps some had fled because of the persecution that were, they were enduring. We know that Demas at least had forsaken him because he loved this present world. But there were others who should have been there who were not. Otherwise, he would not have said, may the Lord not make the charge against them. Well, what was he to do? Here he was without a human friend. In verse 17, he says, the Lord stood with me. And I believe that the Lord was just as real to Paul as any living, breathing human being could have been. The Lord was in heaven, sure. Paul was on earth, sure. But there was a link between Paul and Jesus that assured him that the Lord was standing by him. And he not only stood by me, he says, but he strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Somehow he escaped, at least on that occasion, from what appeared to be hopeless odds. Why? Because the Lord stood by him. When you're in trouble, 
If there's no human being that will stand by you as you stand for what is right, and I mean in trouble for doing right, and no human being will stand by you, you're not alone. The Lord will stand by you as he stood by the Apostle Paul. And he goes on to say, The Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee, take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. My friend, your friend, makes all the difference in the world in your life. One of the most important choices you make is the choice of a friend. Let me urge you, regardless of what human friends you may have, to choose Jesus as your friend. Jesus said, you're my friend, if you do the things I command you. That's not because Jesus is selfish. It's rather because Jesus knows what is best for you. Have you ever had a friend doing something that you knew was going to be harmful and you've tried to warn them? You were not trying just to get them to do what you wanted them to do. You were trying to get them to do what was good for them. Jesus always knows what's good for you and what's good for me. And though he will not yield, he will not compromise, it's because he knows what is best. And faith in him that would make of him our true friend and would allow him to be our friend and we his friend will cause us to say, Lord, you know what's best. I'll walk with you wherever you lead me. I will follow. I wonder if there's someone that has that kind of attitude toward Jesus tonight who will follow him where he leads. He asked you to obey him. We studied last night that Jesus said, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. This is the way you begin walking with Jesus. And having been baptized into Christ, you walk with him day by day, walking in the light as he is in the light, having fellowship one with another, with the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, and with God we walk in the light. His cleanses you from all sin. Is there someone here tonight who will respond to the Lord as we stand and sing?